Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Diffusion, the National Science Show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. In this edition, Mark West and I are going to talk about coral, what it is, how it grows, what it does and how to cook it. And Ian Wolfe will talk to Deborah Neeshaw from Design Thinking about design philosophy. Plus there'll be the usual round of science discussion, opinion, disagreement and hopefully a big fist fight right here in the studio. What more can I say except my name's Watmore, Lachlan Watmore and first up we have the news with Ian. A really big object has snuck into the solar system and smashed into the surface of Jupiter. And the only person who saw it was amateur astronomer in Australia, Anthony Wesley, from his home observatory near Murrumbateman, New South Wales. Fifteen years after Jupiter was battered by comet Shoemaker-Levy in 1994, we've finally seen another large object hit the surface and leave a scar the size of the Earth. After NASA was contacted by Anthony Wesley, they took infrared images from the telescope at Mauna Kea, Hawaii, which show a dark scarlet patch and a bright shower of debris particles in the planet's upper atmosphere. This impact on Jupiter is substantially smaller than the Shoemaker-Levy comet in 1994. They haven't yet determined the size of the object. In 1994, when Shoemaker-Levy hit Jupiter, it was in temporary orbit around the planet before it broke apart, which gave observers nine months to a year advance notice, so we were all able to watch it hit. This time round, it was just an amateur astronomer in Australia. Researchers have reached the amazing conclusion that circumcision of men won't protect women from the AIDS virus, HIV. A study was performed in Uganda and published in the medical journal Lancet. They recruited 922 uncircumcised HIV-infected men aged 15 to 49 years. Some were immediately circumcised and some had the procedure delayed for two years. They also followed 163 wives or female sex partners of these men. What they found was circumcision did not reduce HIV transmission to female partners over 24 months. Longer term effects couldn't be assessed. Condom use after male circumcision is essential for HIV prevention. So did they seriously do a study in which they recruited a bunch of uncircumcised men who had AIDS then let them have sex with women who didn't have AIDS yeah. and then counted to see if the women actually ended up with AIDS. That, that, how did that get through an ethics committee? Well, there's a very simple explanation for that. We're talking about Africa. Okay, so in Africa, there are lots and lots of people who are infected with HIV that don't use condoms and have partners. Hmm. So... If these people hadn't been recruited, they didn't let them have sex with their wives. To stop them, they'd have to lock them up. Right. So they, they would have had sex with their wives anyway. Yes. Uh, still, this is a yeah, bizarre Yeah, but at, at the same time, they didn't urge them to have safe sex, would they? Well... I mean, it, it, it would be contrary to the, 
the the uh, uh, thrust of the the experiment if they were going so to, to speak urge, pardon <laughs> the pun uh, if they were to urge them to use condoms which a, a responsible uh, body would do well you know, so they like, don't say that they didn't i mean look to yeah. give them to give them justice we have to actually see what they wrote in the lancet but what they did was i mean they recruited 922 but they followed 163 partners now, this may indicate that a great deal of the people on talking to the doctors and taking part of the study perhaps started using condoms. Okay. You'll always get a, a large proportion who don't immediately f- change their sexual habits because you tell them to. Right. Even if you recruit them for a drive. In fact, maybe they recruited them especially because they wouldn't listen. Here, all the people who won't listen to us, sign up over here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But what an amazing story. But what I'm absolutely astonished is the, the, the basic premise of the whole thing. It, how on earth could you ever hypothesise that circumcision would affect HIV infection oh, at all? I'm glad you asked that question. It's such a patently absurd hypothesis. But true, because what they found is the foreskin of the penis, which is removed during circumcision, is rich in cells that are particularly easy for the virus to infect. Mm. So... The HIV virus is most easily infecting foreskin cells. So yeah. if you remove the foreskin, yeah. the men are much less likely to catch HIV, like significantly less likely to catch HIV in the first place. Which from, is why, oh, from women? For, from women or from whoever. Oh, okay, right. So this is why there's a big circumcision program in Africa because it reduces men's chances of catching HIV. Mm. What they wanted to find out is if doing this made any difference since the... Well, since the foreskin cells are the ones that are mainly infected, the sites will list the entry of infection to get into the whole bloodstream and infect your whole body. It's possible. I mean, they don't mention it here. I'm I'm hypothesizing about their hypothesis, alas, that these cells will have something to do with the transmission. And, of course, no. No, it was a good hope. Glad they they got funding for it. I mean, anything that would help would be great, and it would be cheap, since you're already doing the men anyway. Mm. But... It doesn't work. Yeah. So, so the conclusion is that, yes, uh, circumcised men are less susceptible, but it makes no difference to the women. Basically, if the men already have HIV, they will still transmit it to the women whether they're circumcised or not. Ian Wolfe. Talked to Deborah Neeshaw from Design Thinking recently about design philosophy. I'm Deborah Neeshaw, and I have a company called Design Thinking, and I help businesses to use design thinking to think more creatively, improve products and services, generate groundbreaking strategy, generally think like designers do in order to do things better. So how do designers think? What is design thinking? thinking. Design thinking is, well, my background is in design, and graphic design and when you're doing a graphic design project there are lots of different aspects to the project so there's a technical aspect and with graphic design there's a visual component so visual sensibility but there's also a thinking component too and that thinking component can be used to solve any problem creatively so it's actually taking out the thinking bit of all of those processes that designers use and then you can apply that to a a wide range of, of different issues to come up with different ideas, think differently, get new perspectives. See, that's something I think a lot of us in the the science and technology industries, when we think of a a graphic designer, we generally think of someone who does artwork and and layout and and makes things look good. Mm. And we're not so aware 
of the thinking, the creative thinking aspect of it. Yes. So tell me a bit more about yeah. how that works. Yeah, I mean, I, I've noticed that too. I remember going to a, a presentation where one of my colleagues was actually uh, taking some business people through a project that he'd done and they were absolutely awestruck by the, the rigour of the thinking and the amount of research that had gone into the whole process. Um, and there's a tendency to think that we draw pretty pictures. And we're quite good at drawing pretty pictures, but there's a whole lot more than that. And I'm talking here as well about best design practice because sometimes you do just want someone to make something look good or communicate clearly. And that's certainly part of graphic design. But there's also a whole process before that involved. That's if you really want to do the job properly, come up with a meaningful, sustainable solution. How is this rigour applied? How is it different? I think the benefits of it are that... It allows you to really think deeply about what the desired outcome is or the desired intention. That's one of the benefits. There's also a lot of detail in the amount of research that designers do. And it's very hands-on. So, for instance, um, we've just been working on improving um, the service that uh, a women's gym offer. And we went through a whole different range of research procedures when we engaged with the people who were using the gym and asked them lots of questions. We went and watched them using the gym and the whole experience right from them arriving to leaving and, and watched the kind of interactions that were happening. And then I actually went through the process myself. So I signed up and became a gym member. And through actually going through the process and experiencing <laughs> what the other members were experiencing, I was able to gain insights that are then helping us to improve the whole process. Um, so there's great rigour at that stage. I'm not saying that other people don't do that, but certainly good design practice would have that. And then once you've actually gone through those processes, you'll c- try and come up with creative ideas or you know, the insights that you have around the research that you've done will inform the ideas that you come up with. Um, and designers, of course, will always try and come up with ideas that no one else has. So it's about <laughs> having original ideas. And again, there are lots of tools and techniques that you can use to sort of push beyond the obvious and come up with something a bit different. Mm. And obviously, you know, the designers are being paid by a client to solve a specific problem within a given deadline, within a given budget. And so it does have to work. <laughs> That's kind of a given. So there is that, that rigour too, you know, that kind of left brain make sure it works but there's also the creativity of trying to do something different break new ground um, push the boundaries and a good design practice will allow time and put a lot of emphasis on that stage of the process well it seems to make such a huge difference there seem to be so many products and services in our everyday life that don't seem to have had any design thinking applied to them mm. and when you finally do have someone apply some design thinking you get uh, what you get apples apple mm. don't have actual new inventions and new technology mm. they have really good designers who yeah. get in totally ordinary technologies mm. and then a, they seem to apply some really good design to it and suddenly it's what everybody wants yeah yeah and i mean they are the masters of this art you know if you want an example of how a design-led company makes a difference breaks new ground and succeeds commercially as well apple are the great example because they understand the importance of the user and they also understand that kind of very well the elegance of the finished product so you'll find you know and i know people who've worked there they spend a lot of time you know developing their products prototyping and once they've got a solution that works they'll eliminate absolutely everything that's superfluous so it's the the most elegant 
solution possible. Plus, I think they also really understand this concept of um, getting people to fall in love with their products. And as a Mac user, I am a victim. <laughs> so, Creating a whole subculture. Exactly. And yeah, it's that je ne sais quoi, you know, it's, <laughs> and, and that really is a lot of attention to detail, a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of hard work goes into producing something that's that elegant and works that well. That yeah. it pushes emotional buttons. Yes. Yeah, that's... Yeah, they're very clever. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I heard a comedian lately. He did, I don't think he realised he was even complaining about design, but it was. He was talking about keyboards. He says, look, you know, the cap lock is right next to A, which is a vowel. Mm. So you're going to hit it every third time you hit an A, you're going to hit cap lock and half your message is going to be in capitals or, or the opposite yes. where you don't want it to be. And a scroll lock. Does anyone even know what the scroll lock is for? Like mm. that's a it's a holdover from I think from old days. Does anyone use the scroll lock on a keyboard? Why is it there? Exactly. And on, even on keyboards that have eliminated the number pad, mm. they still have a scroll lock. Yeah. And they also have the insert key. Does anyone use that? <laughs> Other than by mistake. Yeah. So there seems to be. I mean, I haven't looked at an Apple Mac keyboard mm. lately, so I don't know if they still have those keys, but I suspect they do. Mm. And the other thing about Apple is they do put things out. I know they do lots of prototyping, but they will put things out relatively early. So I bought one of the new generation iMacs as soon as it came out, the one that's got the big screen, and and it went wrong a lot. <laughs> uh. And so I ended up having to replace it. And certainly the keyboard that originally came with that um, wasn't that practical because, I don't know if you remember, it, you could bits sort of the keys were sticking up and so it got very dirty and bits of dust and everything got under. The new one that's got a much flatter surface, you know, is is a much better design. And again, that's about constantly looking and improving and learning from the feedback yes. that you get. And then very quickly, you know, they're onto it. They've released, constantly releasing, like the new iPhone, you know, releasing yes. a new version, a new better version. They've got a few practices I'm not too happy about. There seem to be a few user-unfriendly practices where Apple want very strong controls. Like for iTunes, until recently, everything had digital rights management, which meant yeah. that if you change computers, you had to buy all your music all over again. Mm. And then there's the iPhone where the applications can only be bought through the Apple Store after they've been approved by Apple. Yeah. So you can't even write your own software and put it on your own phone. Mm. Well, clever business people. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I mean, there will be a time when that really pisses people off and they'll have to change it. So I think there's a limit to how long you can get away with that, the way that open source stuff is going. So. so what do you think is either the next big thing that design will have a big effect over or the next thing that really needs design to work it over? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> the big problems of the world, I think. You know, I mean, um, there's a very interesting woman in the UK called Hilary Cotton. Uh, I think her company now is called Participle. And she uses design thinking for social change. So, for instance, one of the projects she worked on a few years ago, um, which actually earned her the title of Designer of the Year, the public voted her that in 2005, was reinventing the prison system. Oh. So, you know, it's big things like that. When we look at, you know, the first thing a designer will ask is, well, what are we trying to achieve really trying to achieve. Oh, that's a dangerous question with prisons. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, it's a well-known fact that what prisons do is um, cultivate much better criminals. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's kind of difficult and messy to look at, but it needs someone to ask that question. And then 
if the intention is rehabilitation, which surely is what we would like it to be, um, then there are much better ways of going about that than the current prison system. And so a whole scheme was developed around Wandsworth Prison in London, um, which the public fell in love with. It's never actually been implemented, as far as I know, so oh. far. Shame. But some really, you know, good ideas around um, people were, were housed in kind of communities, blocks of communities, where they were responsible for what happened in that block. Um, they were learning new skills. Um, a really radical rethink. And many of the world's problems need that kind of new thinking, you know, really looking at things again, asking, what are we trying to do? Is that working? What would be the ideal outcome? How can we go about achieving that? So, so how do we get that sort of design thinking into policy? I mean, it sounds like the reason that might not have got implemented in Britain might be because of political considerations. It's all you can do to get them to hire a scientist to look at anything, mm. let alone... So how would you get them to get designers in? <laughs> well, so, some... Yeah, <laughs> I hear what you're saying. Um, but s some, you know, governments are, and councils are much more open. And I think it's one step at a time. You know, I've worked with the Ministry of Health in New Zealand and they are very open um, I was looking, helping them look at their communication strategies. And so there are, there are people who are open. I think the problem is the bureaucracy and getting it through all those different levels. But we have to start one step at a time. And I also think that pressure from the public will force <laughs> governments to, to think differently and to start involving the public and, and getting more creative thinking happening mm. around some of these big issues. Yeah. Well, I think that's exactly what we need. Mm, sure is. A, c a couple of things, yes. Sure. Um, one of them is, you know, everyone knows Edward de Bono. Yes. <laughs> and one of the things he said around 10 years ago is that um, the problems that we have in the world now will not be solved, you know, by more rational thinking. The problems we have in the world now need design. We need design thinking to solve those problems. And um, I think, you know, to answer one of your questions, there's also been a lot of talk lately about how the schooling system and the education system as it currently is has overemphasized logic and left brain skills and there's a lot of talk now about how we redress that so i think what we really need to do is start to put more emphasis on creative thinking and problem solving or thinking at all i mean it seems to me they don't even teach logic <laughs> that's true <laughs> yeah so a rethink of the curriculum mm, and for, thinking. for thinking and introducing thinking. So, I mean, really, it's again asking that question, what do we want our education system to do? Yes. <laughs> and surely equipping individuals with the skills that they need to change the world, to create a better world. Um, isn't thinking kind of a fairly crucial <laughs> one of so, those one would have thought? And so, yes, um, encouraging those sorts of curriculum activities is, is a really important step and Sir Ken Robinson who was in Australia recently is a great advocate of that you know he worked with the Blair government to get some to redress some of the, the mistakes that have been made in the past and to get a more enlightened education system happening in the UK. So skills really should be more important in a school than content? So, yeah I think you know content is important too but 
again, it's asking that question: you know, mm. what what would we like our children to leave school with, and an ability to think for themselves, an ability to make good decisions, an ability to see the bigger picture, an ability, an awareness, an ability to have an awareness, to be curious about what's happening in the world, the courage to ask difficult questions, and then some skills <laughs> with which to start to solve those difficult questions, which, you know, they will be landed with because we're heading towards self-combustion on a few different levels. Um, yeah, so it, it needs to start much earlier in the school system. And then I think once we get that happening, business and corporate environments, any work environment also needs to encourage <laughs> creative thinking. And so if we develop those skills um, in schools, then of course the next step is that both in universities and then in the work environments, it's very important to create environments where individuals are given the freedom to think for themselves um, and given the, the scope to solve complex problems. So it's about creating work environments where creativity can flourish. And of course design companies do that very well and one of my missions is to help businesses create environments where innovation and creative thinking can flourish in the same way that it does in design companies. Deborah Neeshaw, thank you very much. Thank you Ian. That was Ian Wolfe talking to Deborah Neeshaw from Design Thinking about solving the world's problems creatively. You're listening to Diffusion across Sydney on 2SER 107.3 across Australia on the Community Radio Network and across the world on the internet. Well, recently I went on a holiday to Tonga and saw some spectacular coral. Mm. Now, Lachlan, you have a degree in marine biology and you know a little bit about coral. And what is coral? Coral, officially, is a cnidarian. It's a member of the animal class cnidaria, which includes jellyfish, sea anemones and box jellyfish. And uh, the membership, membership of cnidaria means that you must possess cnidocytes or nematocysts, which are stinging cells. They're the stinging cells that give box jellyfish their painful sting and all the rest of it. Coral are much, much smaller than sea anemones and much, much smaller, obviously, than jellyfish. And they frequently secrete great big skeletons around themselves, which form coral reefs. Now, corals themselves are members of the uh, cnidarian class Anthozoa. Anthozoa are the most complex of the cnidarians. The rest of the cnidarians are pretty, pretty simple. But uh, corals are fairly complex. Like other cnidaria, they have a mouth but no anus. They kind of look like little flowers, tiny little flowers, which are called polyps. Food goes in the mouth and wastes come out the mouth. But they're very much animals uh, because they don't have a cell wall and they have just a cell membrane, just like you and me, uh, which makes their tissues nice and <laughs> soft and squishy. Whereas um, something that's got a cell wall, like a plant or a fungus for that matter, is frequently rather hard because it's lignified. And the uh, the hard bit that you see of coral, yes. that's... That's its dead skeleton, is that's, it? That's its skeleton. The outer part of it you might call a living skeleton because it's still being secreted. The skeleton itself is made of calcium carbonate. And after a time, the uh, coral on the surface will die and then it'll be recolonised. The old skeleton gets packed down into the reef. Uh, it forms various uh, calcium carbonate crystals such as calcite and aragonite. Basically, they're two polymorphs of calcium carbonate. Corals will grow over the top, over the skeleton of the old reef, okay, and they will recolonize the reef. And in doing so, certain relationships between different coral polyps, and therefore they will form themselves into these beautiful structures that we see, such as staghorn coral, that's where you've got these little horns coming out, 
brain coral where you get that big sort of um, uh, globular uh, lump of, of calcite and you know, gorgonian fans and the soft corals and a whole bunch of other, other different corals. But basically, a coral sits in this matrix of calcium carbonate, a hard coral anyway, will sit in this matrix of calcium carbonate in a tiny little sort of uh, uh, ditch it's made for itself or it's, it's formed for itself. Inside the polyp, it's got a variety of different digestive things and all the rest of it. And most importantly, it's got a symbiotic algae called zooxanthellae. Zooxanthellae is a collective word for small microscopic algae that live inside the tissues of the polyps of the coral. It gives the zooxanthellae somewhere to live and the zooxanthellae in return gives its excess nutrients to the polyp. Okay, so zanthellae make more nutrients than they need, so they give that to the polyp. Therefore, coral reefs which do have that symbiosis with the zooxanthellae grow much faster than those that don't. Uh, coral reefs have very strict environmental conditions uh, under which they can form. One, of course, is clear water for obvious reasons. They've got plants inside their systems. Plants need sunlight to, to uh, pre produce nutrients. Therefore, you must have nice clear water for the sunlight to get to the zooxanthellae. With, right. the, with the zooxanthellae, there's excess nutrients around, so the animal is going to grow much faster. Secondly, you've got to have a temperature range between 19 and 30 degrees Celsius. Below 19, they're going to freeze. Above 30 degrees, they're going to bleach. Darwin, and this was borne out by, by subsequent experiment, Darwin postulated that a oceanic atoll, such as, you know, Bikini Atoll or one of those uh, Tahitian atolls, starts off with an regular island, a regular volcanic island, but it's, which is starting to subside. Around the island is a fringing reef. Basically, the island sinks and the fringing reef is left, leaving a great big lagoon where the island used to be. There, right. you, there you've got your atoll. You do, what you've got is a large coral reef, fairly circular reef, Depending on uh, environmental conditions, either to the windward or the leeward of this particular reef, or usually right on top of it, you get what's called a node. And that's where the current of the, uh, a particular local oceanic current slows down to such an extent that it dumps its sediment that it's carrying. That sediment then gets dumped onto the actual reef. And if you dump enough sediment, eventually it's going to come up above the, the uh, sea. Um, put a little guano from your local bird population on that, you'll form a soil with trees and you get Lady Elliot Island. And that's all from this edition of Diffusion, the international science show. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, we'd very much like to hear from you. Please send us an email at diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. You can also pull up our webpage on www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio, all one word, all lowercase, dot com. This show has been produced and panelled by the amazing Ian Wolfe with contributions from Mark West and yours truly, Lachlan Watmore. Uh, it's been produced here in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and we look forward to your company next week. Bye. Farewell to the conch and the coral, the finfish, the sponge and the ray, the carpet weed, satin leaf, cord grass and sand flax, the cove where the manatee play. Farewell to the spiny lobster, the glass, what rip weed and osprey. The mangrove, the hummock, the wild lantana, farewell to the Florida Bay. Farewell to the Florida Bay, I say, farewell to the Florida Bay. Well, some people chase after riches, others crave power and fame. I say the sons of bitches are all pretty much just the same. Raping the earth that sustains them, they don't give a damn for tomorrow. 
Treating the land like a thing that they own When it's only a thing that they borrow They pour out the sludge and the sewerage The grease and the chemical spray Insecticide, pesticide, herbicide, suicide Into the Florida Bay Into the Florida Bay Farewell to the conch and the coral The finfish, the sponge and the ray the carpet weed, satin leaf, cord grass, and sand flax. The cove where the manatee play. Farewell to the spiny lobster. The glass what rip weed in our spray. The mangrove, the hummock, the wild lantana. Farewell to the Florida Bay. Hey, hey, farewell to the Florida Bay. I say farewell to the Florida Bay. So drink up, boys, have you and others. Pay no attention to me I'm only a wandering minstrel Singing the things that I see And I sure wouldn't want to offend you It's your pennies that pay for my bread And tomorrow you'll all be quite sober And forget all the things that I've said So I don't mean to press my religion But pardon me please while I pray For the greedy conniving bastards to drown in the Florida Bay, to drown in the Florida Bay. Farewell to the conch and the coral, the finfish, the sponge and the ray, the carpet weed, satin leaf, cord grass and sand flax, the cove where the manatee play. Farewell to the spiny lobster, the glass what rip weed in our spray. The mangrove, the hummock, the wild lantana. Farewell to the Florida Bay. Farewell to the Florida Bay. I say farewell to the Florida Bay. I've got an idea. We'll put wheels on the cruise ships and call it the Florida Desert. Farewell to the Florida Bay.